Hi, I'm Erica Heilman of Rumblestrip, and I am this week's guest on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them. That's right. This is Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them. I'm Wendy, and I have a head cold. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Erica Heilman of Rumblestrip. Erica is based in Vermont in the northeast of the United States. She's one of just a handful of Metapod guests based in the New England region with a connection to local public radio. Those others would be Jason Moon of the Bear Brook podcast and New Hampshire Public Radio, and Ben and Emery of Endless Thread and WBUR in Boston. If you're interested in those conversations, they are episodes 5 and 9 of Metapod. Erica Heilman is a proud independent podcaster, and her work can be heard on Vermont Public Radio and other public radio outlets across the U.S., she recently won a Peabody Award for her episode of Rumble Strip titled Finn and the Bell. She describes Rumble Strip as a show about people getting through the day. And although the podcast is created in Vermont, Erica insists it's not necessarily a show about Vermont. If you've listened to her work, you'll know that Erica has a gift for extracting the essential humanity from stories told with local and regional details, making Rumble Strip a show for anyone. For me, as a native of the region, this was a rare opportunity to talk about home with someone who is very in tune with the culture of that place. And it's probably not easily detected on the tape, but Erica has an excellent silent laugh. And combined with her consideration, curiosity, honesty, and humor, she's a very special human and just very enjoyable to talk to and listen to. Just one more thing before I start the tape. Erica says that Rumble Strip is a show that she creates in her underwear closet. Now, just remember that in New England, underwear is long and wool, or sometimes waffle knit. It might even smell like mothballs. So, I guess it really is the perfect place to create a podcast, right? I'll start the tape. Erica, it's really nice to meet you. Welcome to Metapod. Thanks. Good to be here. So you're one of just a handful of podcasters based in New England who have been lucky enough to have been featured on Metapod. And as someone who grew up in the region, I am wicked excited to talk to you. <laughs> you know, you are from New Hampshire and I'm from Vermont and there are inherent problems um, in that relationship. But, you know, I'm really excited to talk to somebody from New Hampshire this morning. Good. Can <laughs> we start by asking why the name Rumble Strip? It is not an exciting answer. It's not a name I came up with. It was the brainchild of my son's father's partner who came up with my name. Talk about a auspicious beginning. But I mean, it, it's the the name refers to those little heart, those little bumps on the side of the road that keep you from from killing yourself on a highway. So the you know facile. Uh, metaphor is slow down and listen. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Metapod listeners are from the UK and Europe, and I myself have a, a partner who 
is a non-native English speaker. So when I told him about rumble strip, he said, what's, what's a rumble strip? And I said, well, you know, it's one of those things on the road that makes you pay attention when you're falling asleep or something driving. What would you say needs paying attention to in Vermont? Well, you know, it's funny. I think that, I mean, I make this show in Vermont because Vermont is where I live. Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting about uh, making a show in a small rural place is that the uh, assumption is that the show is about that place. If you make a show in New York City, no one assumes that you're making a show about New York City. Uh, And this is just a, I don't understand the psychology of that, um, but it seems to be true that if you are in you know, far-flung Wales, you're probably making a show, or a far-flung town in Wales, you're probably making a show about a town in Wales. And that's just not true or not inherently true. As it turns out, I make a show in Vermont where I live, and it is about how we get through the day. I mean, finally, it's a selfish project of mine in trying to live and survive better. So it's a series of conversations with people that essentially all lead to the question that no one can answer, which is what's going on. Um, And, you know, then we talk about farming and we talk about smoking crack and we talk about all sorts of things on the way to that final question, which is what's going on. Um, It's not a very, a very concise answer, but, and yes, you do ultimately feel this place where I live in my show. You can hear Vermont in the voices of the people I talk with, which seems inevitable because um, they're the people I'm talking with. Who do you think should listen to Rumble Strip? I mean, the show, does the show appear on Vermont public radio as well as a podcast? It is not a Vermont public radio show, but yes, they run it monthly. Okay. Um, who should listen? I mean, I guess that's the the the, the point is that that it's it's for anybody. Uh, it's it's not at all for just Vermonters. Um, uh, but you know, if you're from a state as small as mine, and you listen to the show, you you're eventually you're going to hear somebody you know. So that's fun. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm I live in a place that's small enough. It's like that's my cousin. But you know, so somebody in Illinois wants to hear him too, usually. I would say New Englanders are kind of known for being stony, and that doesn't mean the kind of stony like at the reggae fest in Vermont, but, you know, (laughs) difficult to crack open or get through to. Would you agree with that? And how do you gain trust from the people you talk to for your interviews? Yeah, I think taciturn maybe is a word at least in the part of Vermont where I live. I mean, as in any place, it's not, I mean, where I live is nothing like the state's biggest city. Um, You know, it's that there are many states within this tiny state. I would concur that the the people here are, 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 nobody here is looking for 15 minutes of fame. Let's put it that way. And those are my favorite people to interview. I really, really don't like interviewing people who really deeply want to be interviewed. So there is um, a, a, 
a chapter, you know, there is uh, some convincing to do sometimes, mm -hmm. but also where there is very little media, where there are very few people walking around with microphones, there's also a, a kind of openness that comes with that because nobody's been burned before. Nobody mm -hmm. knows to say no because it isn't a common uh, occurrence that somebody's walking around with headphones on. So people are um, stoic but open at the same time. Mm -hmm. But as I mean, I think anywhere, the process of coming to know someone in an interview is the same, whoever you're talking with. I mean, you're two mammals who are are circling each other and there it requires a certain amount of time and study of each other to quell the fight or flight. Right. And that is that that's a human process. That's something that happens at a cocktail party when you're hello, my name's Erica. And then you you start to talk and the person says something and you're thinking, why did he say it like that? Or why did he glance over there? Or is he just, is he looking at the, is he just wanting, is, does he want to join another conversation? Like there's all this micro communication that happens that's fascinating. And that's all deeply operative in an interview. Are there ever any concerns about the size of the community and talking for the microphone? I mean, um, it, repercussions it, 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 or, oh, I see. Yeah. When, and when I begin an interview, I all, all, always say to the person, look, if you start sharing stories out of school, if you tell me something about aunt Betty and you realize, good God, I really shouldn't have said that there's always takes these backseats. You can always take it back. I will not use any tape that you, uh, regret. That's something a reporter would never do right in a way. I think, I think. To me, I'm going to get a much more interesting and much better interview if the person I'm interviewing feels safe in that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I feel concerned about something, about a, a sensitivity in a final cut of something I make, I will often share that with the subject before I share it with the world and, and discuss it with them. So you're an independent podcaster, and I think I've read that you often say, well, you have just said that you make the podcast in your closet, but actually you do a lot. You go out, you seem like you're always on a truck or a tractor or hunting or learning how to skin a cow, maybe. You, you're participating in life. It's kind of like an anthropology of Vermont show in some ways to me. Yeah. This is a really just open-ended question, but how do you even achieve that physically and mentally? I mean, you must have some equipment with you. I, you know, I don't know if you have a team of people with boom mics and, or is it just you on the tractor? <laughs> it's, it's very, it is the lowest tech of tech. <laughs> I am the lowest. Uh, no, I just, you know, I don't know where I'm going to end up if I go to somebody's <laughs> house, but this is the great thing about podcasting and particularly or it's a great, great thing about radio certainly versus video any kind of video is it's 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 very mobile so mm -hmm. you can end up deep in the woods and be reasonably certain you can uh, get a good sound um where if you had to drag a gaffer along who knows how that's gonna go uh, yeah no so it's it's fairly easy to go anywhere in this in this in as an independent podcaster do you have some kind of process mentally in terms of, you know, participating, but also thinking about 
the story as it unfolds or what you're going to write. I don't maybe you have a power song or something that gets you in the Well, there's always total eclipse of the heart. That's oh, my okay. power song. Yeah, I know that's we'll put a, that that's in the show notes. Song. Yeah, I know that's really important. And that's um I actually made a show when I turned 50, I made a show. I I forced the people I love to record the song with me singing it. And then I forced everyone I know to, to listen to me singing it. And then I forced my audience worldwide to listen to me singing it. So that was an important chapter for me. Excellent. So I would say that that's my song. Um, okay. What was the question? What do I think about? Oh, you know, it's, it's chewing gum and riding a bike, thinking about what I'm going to make and, and, and still being in a state of wonder in the moment with a person is a, is a ride. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge. It's, I think that that's a skill that one develops over time, Mm -hmm. but I think also you, when you come to know yourself as an editor better, um, not being a good or bad editor, just that, you know, oh, this is who I am as an editor. You begin to see, oh, I can let that go. Or um, I'll round, I'll come round on that again. Or you, you, you feel a little less terrified of what you're not capturing um you you know oh i'm i i've captured the spirit of this the spirit of this is coming through and i and i have the 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 tape that will sugar off to the same thing i feel here so when you're having a conversation with somebody that goes on for two hours if you were to play that for someone even if it was riveting in the moment it's going to be super boring to anyone else who wasn't there because it's just it all of the visual cues are missing. Um, and so what, but what I experienced in those two hours, it's my job to find the spirit of that experience and translate it into a show, which requires, it's like sculpting. It's like carving. It's where you're taking away and away and away layers until you get to the thing that, that was actually essential in the moment of the interview. What about the culture or maybe spirit, as you're saying, in Vermont is easiest to communicate and and what's most difficult, specifically with audio? Huh. About this place? Well, I think that I can get, so I, I, I live in a place where there's still the residue of old, old Vermont. This is a, this is a, a place as you know well, that is, uh, it's a town meeting culture we live in. This is where a place where town means something still, where your small town is a legislative body one day a year, where the the, the, the functioning of this place requires volunteerism. You know, boring, slow democracy is what this place is founded on. And you can hear that in the voices still here, but it's, we're running on fumes the way most places are, we are losing that volunteerism. We're losing um, that sound of, of a place like that. I think that to, to kind of round on this question in a different way, the voices are distinctive in really rural, particularly Northeast Kingdom, Vermont. The accent is strong and it's easy to lean into that as a feature in and of itself. And that's a very stupid romantic idea about people and it's a trap so I I try not to to romanticize the voices I mean they're beautiful to listen to in the same way that if I were to listen to somebody from you know anyone from Scotland I'm just 
utterly compelled. And that's fair, right? That's fair to be charmed, but they're they're as a as a as a as the producer and or the the an and editor, I have to know there's something underneath there. I've got to be looking beyond the charm of a voice. And, and that is just that again, if we are if, if I arrive to that third place with this other person, which is where I don't know the question and they don't know the answer, or we've arrived in some place where neither one of us is quite sure where we are, then I know we've arrived somewhere that's interesting to other humans too, because this is a very human place where where the question is, what's going on? And the other person says, I don't know. It's just the ultimate state of humility, maybe. Mm -hmm. And everyone can arrive there with someone else if if they try to. Um, so the, the pitfalls in a place are, you know, to me, the, the, the charm of how different this is maybe from Ohio or anywhere else. And it's valid, but it's only one layer Mm -hmm. valid as a story element, but it is only one layer. You have an episode with a dairy man, a dairy farmer. And this episode struck me so much about this spirit of New England. I'm I'm being a little bit slippery here with Vermont and New England. I apologize. There is a point where this man says he's explaining that he prefers to barter um, for goods rather than use money and that money is useless. And there's this one thing he says that that way the government won't get your money, which to me it, I I just came out in the living room and I said to my partner, "This is so New England. I can't even, dis- I don't even know how to explain it." And you have somehow captured that. What about what about money? How much do you think about money? Money is way overrated. You got to have some. That's I like the barter system. If people would trust each other and be fair with each other, it's the greatest thing in the world. And nobody controls you. You can make any deal you want between you and I. We both keep our end. It's fine. And the government don't get any of it. You just help somebody out and they come back and help you when you need help. And And where's that happening now? That's here in your barn, yeah? Yeah, yeah. If I'm out of field getting hay and somebody needs the thing, they come and drive a tractor for me and or like doing firewood and they help do firewood and they get their firewood truck to them. It's a, an old-fashioned system and it works today just as well as any the people that need it. I also feel like many of the conversations, they have commentary that are maybe about the state state government or maybe federal government that if I were in New Hampshire, I might not hear that in the same way. I, I, I guess I don't really have a question here. It's mainly just a compliment that I feel like you've encapsulated the spirit of New England. <laughs> when, so, you say that if you, when you say if I were in New England or if I were in New Hampshire, I wouldn't hear it the same way. You, you mean because you are uh, much further away it captures you in a different way, or you would recognize it if you were in New Hampshire because you know this place. Is it, or um, I think maybe someone from New Hampshire, maybe Massachusetts or Maine as well, they might not say something like that to me because 
they maybe it's assumed that I know that, that that I know that it's not a good thing that the government gets my money. So to hear to hear that being explained by you know the culture that you grew up in is kind of fascinating for me. I see. I, I see. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um an episode that I really enjoyed is titled Virtual Justice, and I think it maybe gets a little bit of this dynamic as well. And I think that was published in August of 2021. And just for listeners who haven't heard it, it goes nicely with an episode you did around the same time with your friend Susan, I believe. Right. Who sounds very insightful and funny. Virtual justice is about what happens when systems and procedures that have traditionally been carried out face-to-face with a certain degree of theater, uh, the, the judicial system in the state of Vermont, um, when those processes go virtual. And it's about institutional integrity being lost when this in-person communication evaporates. I was so compelled by the man explaining the value in the in-person procedures and the theater of these procedures, and then realized that I'm so convinced by a man I'm hearing in my ears with technology over the internet. What is so compelling about audio storytelling that can make a story about the value of face-to-face communication so compelling if I've just messed up that question but no no I mean your point it's very yeah there's I guess there's a really deep irony in (laughs) the fact that that this format is so intimate and yet it's purely virtual Mm -hmm. um uh it's that's I'd never I never thought about that before it was a story about the critical uh that in person particularly legal matters, criminal mm-hmm. matters, that, that people need to be able to see their lawyer to communicate in person, that it is a gestural language as much as anything. And that without in-person communication, without you know um, somebody's cousin sitting in the back of the courtroom who the lawyer can turn around and say, Billy, can you take her home if I get, if I release her right now, can you, t- can you take her back to your mother's house? I mean, all that ambience, right? In-person ambience is connective tissue mm-hmm. in life, but also particularly in legal matters, right? Or in legal procedures. Uh, but yes, this, and you hear this story without picture and it's more intimate than television because it, with anything r- r- involving a monitor, y- you you are, it's passive on some level. You are, you are meeting it, you know, you're do it's doing half the work for you, but in podcast it's in your ear and you have to conjure it so you have to be part of it as it's happening in order to to for it to work um so yeah that's funny it's incredibly i i detest technology on so many levels and yet i this technology made this possible for me it struck me you know to go back and listen to something of a, a moment in time in these in these weird times we're living in you know, there's a lot of talk about the how great it is to work remotely and not have to deal with people. Um, and I think we tend to think of that in a setting where um, we can make profit. We can do this 
easier, more efficiently in a setting where we're making profit, you know, for business. Yet this is a example where the benefits don't seem to be there and it's not about work for profit really. So work for profit, I think more and more I'm thinking that the erosion of civility and just we are hardwired to leave soup on somebody's front step after they had a baby. We just we just know that that is a good idea. And where do we learn that? Right? We learn we learned that from our neighbors. We learned that from the just the slow, boring, steady grind of local culture. And with our lives being so much now online, I wonder where where do we learn or or even more important, where do we have the opportunity to be those best selves anymore? Even a offhand conversation at a grocery store with a checkout person, that's a profound exchange. How's it going? I don't know. How's it, how's it going? You know, how's your mother? These just, you, you know, you're not thinking about it very consciously, but you leave the store feeling better, uh, sated or nourished or something. These arbitrary, unimportant exchanges with humans that are all between the important parts. These are what sustain us. And I feel as though we are giving them away because we've never shown a light on them because they didn't need a light to be shown on them. Um, But they are what makes us people. You know, it's the best of being a person are those all that language of gesture and day-to-day communication with the world around us. I I don't know. I I worry about that. Do you talk to a lot of young people for the podcast? And if you do, what would you say is unique about life for them right now in Vermont? Well, in Vermont, I mean, I have a regular uh, annual date with my friend Leland, who is, uh, as a kid, my son went to school with. And when he was in first grade, he was over for hanging out with my son. And I just, he has an amazing voice. I was like, Leland, 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 come in here. And I interviewed him and, you know, he went off about deep space and the civil war. And so ever (laughs) since that time, every spring we get together and we talk. And I just had my day with Leland this last weekend, we went fishing up in the kingdom and, uh, I can't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think that at least I don't know that the kids that I talk with seem, they seem pretty resilient to me. They seem okay. Um, I have also done stories about teachers in schools and who are very much saying that kids are very much not okay, that it is deeply problematic what they're seeing, that resilience is not in evidence anymore. And that's really troubling that that kids cannot work through basic, simple, straightforward challenges that they won't just won't. Um, I mean, that that this is a trend that they are noticing, just a fragility. um, And it's none of this seems awfully surprising. And maybe it's not only a product of COVID, but also the way that we approach education in the first place. I don't know. But that is that is what I'm what I'm hearing. I'm not finding that as much in evidence in the kids that I talk with. Kids are hard to interview. They're they're really slippery and and hard. They're scary. I get really nervous before interviewing. Kids. 
So you recently won a Peabody Award for your episode titled Finn and the Bell. Congratulations. Thank you. And actually, I came to know you because one of our former guests recommended that episode to me. Um, has that opened any doors for you? <laughs> I'm laughing just because I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't. I, so again, I think if I were a production company that had produced this show, I think maybe it would be more obvious the ways in which a uh, an award is life altering or you know profession altering but i'm still you know i'm still in my closet and i don't plan on leaving it because it's what i like to make so i suppose if if i were if i could get on the big horse and start writing grants that maybe that would go better now for me um certainly you could get your own truck I could get my own truck. Or maybe you already have your own truck. I don't, but I would really like to have my own. Not a big truck, just a really small truck I would like. Um, but I also, you know, I'm looking around, I'm in an office, and I've never been able to record in my office. I've always had to run into the, again, into my underwear closet. So I think that with some imagination and with the bolstering of this, you know, with the, the the accolades ringing in my ears, I could soundproof the office. I could really take that next step. Um, but no, it hasn't um, changed anything, but it was incredibly exciting to get this honor, particularly as an independent podcaster. I'm glad to represent my tribe. Um, I feel as though, I mean, we are the origin story of podcasting. Weird people in closets and basements everywhere. Those are that's where podcasts came from. And they changed the way that radio sounds. Um, they pushed, pushed the, the boundaries of what's possible. And uh, they are still there. They're still out there making shows in their idiosyncratic ways. And they're beautiful. There's a kind of sublime you can achieve as an individual producer that you can't achieve as a, as a group of people. I mean, they're not better or worse. They're very different. Um, but I'm glad that an independent podcast won a Peabody, and obviously I'm sort of glad it was it was mine. <laughs> Is yeah. there another episode that you're particularly proud of? Wow, yeah, I, I mean that's hard because they're all. I'm, I'm, I think I'm proud of I'm proud. Of, I fall in love with all of the people I interview. All, all of the people I interview. If I didn't, I don't think it would be a very good show. So I, I fall in love with all of the people. There's a show that comes to mind as a show that there's a story I made a number of years ago called Last Chapter about two men, two men who were best friends who lived in Montpelier, Vermont, and one uh, got a um, uh, illness and he asked his best friend to help him die. In Vermont, there is a patient choice and control at end of life act. And uh, so you can legally take your own life under certain circumstances. So it's a story about how they arrived at that end. Um, and it's a, just an absolutely beautiful story about a friendship. And then in year, some years later, the Duplass brothers made a, a movie based on that story called Paddleton. Okay. Uh, I think they made that movie in 2019. And uh, it is that story. Um, 
And I, that's just a story that I think is really, is really beautiful about. It's also a story about two men of an intimate friendship between two men, which is kind of an unusual uh, kind of friendship. Mm-hmm. And I need to ask if you have worked on a show called Shaking Out the Numb with a band, um, Sylvan Esso, is that? Sylvan Esso, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the music in your own podcast comes from your friends, it sounds like. Yeah, I don't use as much music. I have been using less and less music for some reason. I use a lot of uh, nature sound or sound I record out my door, you know, crickets mm-hmm. and birds and rivers and, and stuff, ambient sound. Uh, but yeah, I love using my, my friend Brian Clark, who's a local, he's a friend and a woodworker and a musician here in Calais. I use his music a lot. And yeah, the uh, Amelia Meath, who is the singer of Sylvanesso, years ago, she, I can't remember what the show, oh, it was Donald Trump had just been elected and I made a show called Duncan. It was Duncan Donuts at the time. It's, it had not become Duncan, but it was a show. It's about always going to be Duncan Donuts. It's always going to be Duncan Donuts. Right. At a certain age, like there, you cannot retain yeah. these things. But after that, I was so depressed after Donald Trump won that I, and I was, I was really seasonally depressed also because the winters here are really long and really dark. So I was not well. And I was like, what would make me feel just a little bit worse? And it was going to Dunkin' Donuts in Barrie, Vermont and sitting there with my microphone, which I knew people would find terrifying and awful and asking, begging people to talk with me. So I thought that would be awful. So that's prob- that's what I'm going to do. So I did that. And I, I went to Dunkin' Donuts and I hung out a sign that said, if you talk to me, I'll buy you a donut. <laughs> so it's like the worst kind of self-flagellation what does it mean? <laughs> self in the back anyway it was i really really just asking people what class are you because it's a question at least in new england you never you're just not allowed to ask that question you're not allowed to discuss class because you're not supposed to class is not supposed to be an issue here but of course it is and right after i thought it's, it was somehow related to donald trump's win that i was like that would be the the hardest question to ask is what class are you? So after I made that show, um, I got an email from Amelia Meath, who was the singer of Sylvan Esso. And of course, because I'm old, I had no idea what Sylvan Esso was. And she's like, hey, yeah, you know, I really love the show. And, you know, I'm in a couple bands if you ever want to use our music. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I did, and then, you know, weeks later, I was like, I wonder what those bands are. And I looked them up and I was like, Jesus, those are real <laughs> bands. Uh, yeah, so I've used some of her music too. Sometimes I ask her to hum into her iPhone for my show, and she mm-hmm. is really good at that. Good. Yeah, using friends' music is really is really fun in podcasts. I'm curious if there's any correlation between class and the donut type that was chosen. That is a really smart question. That is a really smart question, and I'm going to go with glazed. I think it's a straight up that most, you know, if you're, that middle-class people went with the glazed. Okay. You know, and I think that the, it, you know, if you're lower middle, you might go with frosting stuffed, which was my choice of donut. Um, But it's a tough call. It's a tough call. Actually, what was really interesting about the show is how many people 
first of all, the, the, the more money people have, the more uncomfortable they are with the question. Mm-hmm. And which is, I guess, intuitive, but I thought kind of fascinating. And also hearing people talk about, well, okay, so, well, I have, and I'd say, what, what does rich mean? And they said, well, if you have a, a summer camp at Lake Elmore, then that means you're upper middle class or you're rich. So the people's criteria for what is rich and poor was fascinating and mm-hmm. funny and totally endearing, you know? Mm-hmm. What do you think Vermonters want international podcast listeners to know about their lives? Oh, my. You keep laughing at me. No, I think it's just a great question. I don't think Vermonters care very much about what (laughs) people internationally think of them. Honestly, I don't think that, I mean, I don't, I deeply think, I mean, they're much, much more interested in what their neighbors think of and, and, and maybe what people in Montpelier who are state capital, they, they're interested in what people in Montpelier think about what they have to say. But I think they really deeply couldn't care less about what people in New Zealand think. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, I think that they'd be uh, a lot of people would be shocked to imagine that anybody in Amsterdam might want to listen to their stories. Yeah. I, yeah, somehow can imagine that. Yeah. But I'd be shocked if anybody, I mean, I make the show and I'm shocked. So last question, and it's kind of a weird one related to smell. Smell is important. Right. Are there specific kinds of smells from Vermont that you've had to communicate in the podcast? And how did you do that? I should have done that. Wait. Okay. There's one that comes to mind, an old general store not a general store, a store where you can get basic hardware. You can get boots, dry goods. You can get some dry goods, but it's mostly kind of, you can get a fishing rod. Um, you can get handkerchiefs. Yeah. Uh, you can get work overalls. There's a smell of, of, of almost like it's a leather smell and a smell of, um, of waxed wooden floors. That's a Vermont smell that I think I tried to articulate once in a show. And maybe the smell of ozone before a storm, that's a smell that I associate with here, that electric smell before a storm. I mean, that's everywhere, but I, that's, I, I'm from here, so I associate it with this place. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hot lunch, maybe <laughs> hot lunch. Hot lunch at the school, rolls. I don't know. I think I love that idea. Smell is, I'm so smell sensitive. Some people, uh, smell is hugely important to me, but I don't know that I've ever really tried to translate it. I'm thinking of one episode. I think he's asking you to really sense like an animal's urine or scent somewhere. Maybe you're out hunting, I'm not sure, but it's obviously critical to whatever activity is happening at the moment. It was Which, moose piss. Yes, yes. It's probably That's right. right. Yeah, he got me right, my face right down in it. Because <laughs> he was trying to fit. We were hunting, and he was... This is a moose pit. So a bull moose had scraped a pit here, and then he urinates in it during the breeding season, which was 
we're sort of at the tail end of the breeding season now, but there's some, some bulls will keep breeding into November, but, and then the cows will come and roll in it, um, roll and get that urine on them to show their acceptance for breeding. So see if you can smell a really, um, it will taste, it will smell like cat piss, strong cat piss odor. Um, and you know it. You if you're not smelling, it's just too oh, old. It's faint. Okay. I can smell it. Can you smell it, a cat pissy? Yep. Okay. All right. That's that's the bull. He's pissed in there. All right. Back on. But we were hunting for birds, for grouse or something. But he was showing me sign. He hunts absolutely everything. So he saw something that was clearly or a, a place a moose had been, and got me down in it to see how long ago the moose had been there. Yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> Erica, it's been wicked pleasure to have you on Metapod. Thank you so oh, much. For, thank you so much for talking to me about Rumble Strip and Vermont and New England and all this good stuff like moose piss. Moose piss. It's important. It was a total pleasure talking with somebody from New Hampshire about my show. This is a first. <laughs> Great. Good. (laughs) Thanks so much to Erica for the time and thought she gave to my weird questions. I really hope that Peabody Award opens some doors, even if just to a bigger and more equipped underwear closet, or maybe even a new truck, which could obviously be called the Rumble Truck. You can follow Rumble Strip on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. There are links for you at metapodshow.com, or you can go to the rumblestripvermont.com website and check out the Rumble Strip merch. It's a great way to support an independent podcast. And hey, thank you to the listeners who enjoyed the Metapod conversation with Reverend Billy and Savitri D. That's episode 51. I really appreciate your enthusiastic comments. If you'd like to comment on an episode of Metapod, you can send me a note via Twitter at The Metapod Show or on Instagram at Metapod Show. Also, leaving a rating or review supports the show in a very simple and cheap way. Thanks. All right, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. See you. This episode of Metapod was recorded, edited, and produced by me, Wendy Morrill. 